the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall, a retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel... Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. Good evening. This is A Different Perspective, and I am Kevin Randall. I'm going to be joined today by Mark O'Connell, and I will warn everyone now, including Mark, that at some point during the program, I will probably call him Mark McConnell, just because that's the way things are in my world, and I screw things up that way all the time. Uh, Mark O'Connell, I brought him back because he's just published a book, The Close Encounters Man, which is about J. Allen Hynek, and we'll talk about that uh, here in just a moment. But uh, Mark O'Connell has written several episodes of Star Trek, The Next Generation, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which I think is very impressive. Uh, he's also written one of the, well, one of the episodes he wrote, uh, Who Mourns for the Morn, was named uh, by, named a Hugo winning science, uh, I can't even get through this and I wrote it myself, was named by Hugo winning science fiction writer Charles Jane Anders as the number 72 uh, best episode in the top 100 Star Trek episodes of all time. And I say uh, Hugo winning, for those of you who are not science fiction fans, Hugo is one of the uh, prizes like the Oscar or the um, Emmy given out by science fiction fans and science fiction writers and science fiction organizations to uh, people who write science fiction for for that matter. Uh, he's done a lot of projects for uh, Disney, for DreamWorks, and all of that sort of thing. Um, but I'm going to just jump through all of that and because I simply can't read it for some bizarre reason and mention that he has just published, as I said earlier, The Close Encounters Man, which is an authorized biography of uh, J. Allen Hynek, who was responsible for the Center for UFO Studies and who was the Air Force consultant to UFOs for a long time and who was a rabid debunker when he first began. So, Mark O'Connell, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thanks for having me on the show. To promote your book. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> and, and to talk about important things. Okay. 
I guess the simplest question is, how did you come to write this particular book about J. Allen Hynek? It's funny, Kevin. So many people ask me that question in the sense of, you know, what inspired you to write this book? What made you want to write about Hynek? And the actual answer is not nearly as interesting (laughs) as all that. Um, I I had started writing a UFO blog, High Strangeness, uh, several years ago. And I was always looking out for uh, new material, new new UFO stories to write about in my blog. And discovered that the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies was still in existence in Chicago. Uh, I, was, I was actually living uh, part of the time in Chicago uh, back then. And, and so found out that the center was really just a couple of miles from where I lived. So I contacted the scientific director at the center, Mark Rodiger, and uh, sort of managed to get an invitation to stop by and, and, and look through Dr. Hynek's files. And uh, I just had so much fun doing that. I, I, started, I started going to KUFOS every couple of months um, just, just to educate myself on Dr. Hynek's life. And on one of those visits, uh, Mark Rodiger said, you know, we, we've always been kind of hoping we, would find a, we could find a writer to tell the definitive uh, story of Dr. Hynek's dual careers, not just UFO investigator, but also as an astronomer. And he asked if I'd be interested. And I said, well, yeah, never even occurred to me. But as soon as he said it, of course, that's what I wanted to do. So I got the job just like that, just by sort of being in the right place at the right time. Well, I know as a writer, one of the questions I'm always asked is, where do your ideas come from? Mm-hmm. And um, I, a friend Bob Cornett would say, well, they arrive in a brown paper bag from somewhere uh, on my front porch, and I just open it up and, and look at them. And that's where I get my ideas. I, um, I always said that I had a notebook, and I had written down three or four different ideas for stories or magazine articles in it. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I finished those three stories. And the, the funny thing is, I never wrote those three stories. I, ha- I still have them. I could write them at some point, but uh, I have not uh, even started that. Uh, so I'm, I'm still good for at least three more stories. Uh, so that's kind of the way things go. The book that I just got coming out in October on the Socorro landing kind of started because I was doing this program and talking about Socorro and got interested in some of the intricacies of that of that case and ended up doing a book on it just by accident. Uh, I'm joined by Mark O'Connell. His uh, blog is www.highstrangenessufos.com. And we will be back more to find out about J. Allen Hynek at the Close Encounters Man right after this, so stick around. Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Thank you. 
Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. I am back. I'm joined by Mark O'Connell. I'm being very careful to make sure I get his name right because of the Mark McConnell thing would really confuse me. Uh, His blog is www.highstrangenessufo.com. And my blog, if you care to look at it, is at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, which uh, I should mention more often. Uh, Mark is the author of The Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs, which is about Dr. J. Allen Hynek. We've just learned how he, I guess, blundered in to writing this book by showing up at Kufos periodically and looking through Dr. Hynek's papers. Um, and Dr. Uh, Rodiker, the scientific director, asked him if he'd be interested in doing a biography of him. So we've got the man who wrote the authorized biography of J. Allen Hynek. So give us, I guess, quickly... Uh, a look at uh, Hynek's career as an astronomer and how he got sucked into UFOs. When you put the two careers side by side, Kevin, it almost seems like it was absolute destiny. Um, Like everything in his scientific career led to his UFO work. And for example, um, some of his early work uh, research that he did under contract to the U.S. Air Force had nothing to do with UFOs. It had to do with studying how stars twinkle. That might not sound like very interesting or important work, but actually, if you are a pilot out at night and you know that there might be hostile aircraft out there in the sky, being able to tell if a bright light that seems to be moving is actually moving and isn't just twinkling, that's a very important thing for a pilot to know, a military pilot. So those were the kinds of things Heineck uh, was researching early in his career. He was fascinated with studying these, the, the uh, light spectrum of stars. That was a big love of his, and, and he, he probably wished he could have done that for his, his whole career, but he was never able to. Uh, he studied binary stars. He set a new record for the discovery of the most supernovas all in one study, at a uh, observatory he built for Northwestern University uh, in the 60s. So well, he's let, me, got let, some... let, let me interrupt here and just how many sure. supernovas did he find? Well, it depends on the story you have. I have two different accounts. When I spoke with when I spoke with Dr. Hynek's um, colleague uh, Bill Powers, Bill said that they discovered 50. In the Northwestern records, I believe the number they give is a dozen. So it's somewhere between a dozen and 50 supernovas. But <laughs> and, here's and, how. Were they in our galaxy or were they in multiple galaxies? They were in multiple galaxies, I believe. Oh, no, no, probably not. But, but here's what I wanted to say, though. 
the okay. reason he was able to do this was that he was also a pioneer in um, using television cameras to uh, make celestial images. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today. He was, he was really a pioneer in the field of celestial imaging. He was the first person to, to get a telescope up above the atmosphere. Uh, in the, as a basically a predecessor to the Hubble Space Telescope. And he was the first astronomer to use a television to, um, to gather light from stars. And this is how they were able to identify so many, so many supernovae, because, because they were using this television system that Dr. Heineke developed. Well, you say he put a telescope up above the atmosphere, but he was using balloons to do that, and I thought it, yeah. the, the pro program pretty much failed. It did fail, but it didn't fail because there was anything wrong with the concept. It failed because of technical issues. The first three flights, the first three test flights of this high-altitude balloon, uh, the first one, actually, the two-man crew made it up 15 and a half miles high, and when the um, when the telescope operator went to get his readings, he found that the telescope was inoperative. So that scratched the first mission. The, the second and third test flights were scratched because the, the balloons were blown loose from the jantries. And then the Air Force abruptly pulled funding for the fourth test flight, which is probably the one that would have been a smashing success. So that was desperately unfortunate. Um, but it was a concept, though, that Heine continued to develop uh, throughout his career. He was he was always convinced that um, uh, that having a telescope outside the Earth's atmosphere would be one of the most amazing scientific developments imaginable. And then he died just prior to the Hubble telescope being launched. Well, he died in '86. I, I can't remember offhand when Hubble was launched, but he definitely he missed it. Um, I think he would have been thrilled to see it. Yeah, that was kind of my thinking. I, I, he did not survive long enough. I, he died of brain cancer, I believe it was, yeah. um, prior to the launch of Hubble. And I think he probably would have been delighted to see the images that Hubble has yeah. been able to capture. Yeah. Can I, can I mention one other story of a scientific work? Yes, please. Okay. and Because this, this is one of my favorites, and it takes up a big, a big portion of the book. In, in the late 1950s, um, Hynek was... Assign, assigned the task of developing the world's first global satellite tracking network. This had never been done before because nobody ever thought of it before because we had never, we had never launched an artificial satellite into orbit. Um, but during the International Geophysical Year in the late 50s, uh, the United States was all set to launch the first satellite. Of course, the Soviet Union beat us to the punch with Sputnik, but Hynek's tracking system was already partially in place when Sputnik was launched. So Hynek's system um, actually enabled us to keep track of Sputnik as it orbited the Earth, uh, which, which went a long, long way towards reassuring the American public that uh, the Russians weren't attacking us from space. But that was, a, that was a huge, huge accomplishment for Hynek to develop this tracking system that, you know, nobody even thought it could ever work. Nobody even thought we would ever get a rocket off the ground to begin with. 
And we were having some pretty crappy luck, as I remember. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had dismal luck at the beginning. The, the, the joke I remember from the late 50s, early 60s, was the countdown at, at uh, uh, Cape Canaveral, later Cape Kennedy, now I guess it's Cape Canaveral again, was, you know, three, two, one, oh, nuts, because the rocket blew up <laughs> on the pad. That sounds about right. So he's doing this scientific work, I mean, legitimate scientific work, important scientific work, and he is sucked into UFOs. How did that come about? You, well, you mentioned he was doing the STAR study, and yeah. the, Air Force, the Air Force would have been interested in that. And I, I, the one thing I was going to say at that point was uh, the Air Force attitude was always, if it's pointed at you, meaning the aircraft is coming at you, it's hostile until mm -hmm. you find out otherwise. But so he's developing a way for the pilots to distinguish between starlight and obviously at night starlight and, and enemy aircraft and that sort of thing. Yeah, that was part of his work. He had also been involved during World War II in developing the proximity fuse, which which is the first smart weapon in history. Um, it was uh, it was a device that could be put in the nose cone of a warhead that would send out radio waves in advance of the warhead, and when those waves reflected back from the intended target, the warhead would know at which point it would know how close it needed to get in order to detonate. This was a really big deal in World War II. It saved the lives of a lot of our gunners because they didn't always have to hit a bullseye to get a hit. Um, so Hynek was involved in that project, and that's how he got his first high security clearance from the government. So fast forward a couple of years, 1947, the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting. In June of that year, all of a sudden, the entire country has gone flying saucer crazy. People are seeing flying saucers everywhere. And reporting them to the Air Force. And the Air Force is just completely bewildered. They have no idea how to deal with these um, flying saucer reports. They do their best to debunk them all as, you know, mistaken identifications of, of, uh, of you know, regular human manufactured aircraft or more likely of astronomical phenomenon. But they need a scientist to back them up on this so that the public will believe them. So well, well, let me interrupt you because I, I, I'm going to have to jump in because I, I think that in the summer of 1947, the Air Force, and it really was the Army Air Forces at the time, wasn't really trying to debunk these things. They didn't know what it was either. They were trying to figure out exactly what was happening. And if you take a look at the history from the newspapers and all of that, you can see there's a lot of uh, different ideas being proposed, but they really didn't have any idea of what it was. I think their fear was it may be something of Soviet design or something from Asia that might cause trouble for the United States. So they have a, a rooting interest in figuring this out as quickly as possible. But the, the point is they're now dealing with all of this sort of thing, and they're, they're seeing that some of it may be astronomical in, in origin, so they need an astronomer. Yeah, exactly. Um, and because the Air Force's UFO work was housed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in southern Ohio, it made sense to reach out to an astronomer who was teaching 80 or, 80 or 90 miles up the road at the Ohio State University where Hynek was teaching. So, uh, you know, he, he called himself the innocent bystander. He was close at hand. He already had had high security clearance with the government so he could be put to work with a minimum of red tape. And so the Air Force sought him out uh, at the university and recruited him to very simply explain away as many of these case reports as simple misidentifications of the planet Venus, meteors, comets, um, 
And Heineck was very, very good at it. And I think you mentioned before that he, you know, he he was very good at it and he, he actually enjoyed it quite a bit because he thought he was really contributing to science by explaining away this this weird um, craze of seeing strange things in the sky. Um, so that's that's really how it all began. So you're suggesting that he came into the study with a bias against the idea that it was anything other than um, some kind of misidentifications or maybe hoaxes or that sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. 80% he found that um, the cases he reviewed during Project Sign, the Air Force's first UFO project, he found that 80% of them could be explained away as misidentifications of man-made objects like airplanes or balloons, uh, birds, misidentifications of astronomical objects, and in some cases, hallucinations and hoaxes. But that accounted for about 80% of the cases. And the 20% that couldn't be explained, Hynek felt very certain that they all had perfectly natural explanations and that given enough time and resources to investigate all of them fully, that we would be able to explain those 20% away as well. Well, that's where he was wrong, and that's where he tripped himself up over time. So uh, I, I guess the thing that comes to my mind, he's looking just for explanations. He's not really investigating. He's just reviewing the work of other investigators and trying to determine if there was a, like an astronomical phenomenon would fit into the sighting. Yeah, that's exactly right. He's just he's sitting down at a desk, and he's got a stack of uh, telex reports that have come in from Air Force bases around the country and around the world uh, describing UFO sightings. And he is just basically going through this pile of paperwork, uh, looking at the facts at hand, checking his astronomical charts, and deciding, well, okay, this this one sounds like it's just somebody misidentified Venus. you know. And he would just go through, boom, 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 and just knock them all out <laughs> pretty quickly. It was pretty easy work for him. Um, and he and he really did enjoy it because he thought he was he thought he was um, helping to stamp out bad science. Um, and and he thought he truly believed at this point and this we're talking about 1947, 1948. He truly believed that it was just a fad. He thought that UFO reports were a fad. They would die out in, in no time at all. Um, he put it down to essentially paranoia among the American public, of another Pearl Harbor-style sneak attack. You know, after well, let, me, let me interrupt here. Let me interrupt sure. here because I'm going to have to take a break. Uh, you can look at uh, Mark O'Connell's website at www.highstrangenessufo.com and uh, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you're interested in the Roswell UFO case, I suggest, because it's my book and I'm biased, take a look at Roswell in the 21st century to get a different perspective on uh, the Roswell UFO case. We will be back right after these messages with Mark O'Connell talking about his book, The Close Encounters Man. So stick around. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.com. 
We are back. I'm joined by Mark O'Connell. I keep thinking maybe I should say Mark McConnell just because I predicted I was going to do that. And the other thing that I, I thought I'd mention here, which is completely irrelevant, is I notice that I seem to do better when I go off script. I don't have to read something over the air. I can do a much better job of this uh, whole radio thing at that point. Um, like I say, I'm joined with Mark O'Connell. We're talking about J. Allen Hynek and how he was investigating UFO sightings or flying saucers, if you will, back in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, and how he believed that he would be able to solve them all and would uh, come up with an explanation. I, I assumed that when he was looking at somebody and he said, well, this was Venus, he was looking at a star chart or uh, a, a map of the sky and saying, well, Venus was in that position at that time and would have been been doing these sorts of things that the, the witness reported. Uh, I mean, is that that was kind of what he was doing, right? Oh, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Heineck was Heineck was very much by the book stick with the facts. So, yes, that's exactly what he did. He would take the witness's testimony uh, and he would take, you know, whatever whatever additional information had been supplied by Air Force investigators right up front, and he would compare that information to, as you say, star charts. Um, and, you know, he if, if something was in the sky and shouldn't have been there, Heineck would know it. He was, you know, he's a professional astronomer. He knows what's supposed to be in the sky and what's not supposed to be in the sky. So, you know, he was able to uh, back his his uh, analyses up with with cold hard facts every time. Did he get along well with the Air Force officers running the various projects? Because I get the impression, especially uh, he and uh, Quintanella, who was the last of the Project Blue Book uh, commanders, chiefs. Didn't get along at all. I think I got the impression from looking at many of the things you said in the book that Heineck really didn't care for much many of the military officers that he worked with. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? Oh, yeah. And it's easy to see why. Project Blue Book was never really – it was kind of the Rodney Dangerfield of the Air Force. It got no respect. It got no funding. It got no staffing. Um, the project chief was almost always uh, a low-level officer with with very little clout, very little power in the system, uh, and I think that was that was often very frustrating to Heineck because he was always pushing for for more resources, more manpower, more time, and he was never able to get it. And the thing is, though, that the the, the project Blue Book project chiefs were moved in and out very, very quickly. Every year and a half, two years, maybe three years, there'd be a new project chief brought in. But Heineck was always the constant. Heineck was always on staff. And my guess is that it's because these new project chiefs would come in and they're being given a task that to them is is not just impossible, but isn't even real. So I think I think the new project chiefs came in and said, oh, this astronomer guy, we need to hang on to him. So I think even when Heineck started to become a real thorn in the side of the Air Force, they still kept him on just because he was the guy who knew everything. He had been there since day one, so he knew everything. Well, uh, I, would, I would say also, I think if I was an Air Force officer uh, and was given the assignment at Project Blue Book, I would think that would be a career killer. Oh, uh, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, this is, well, this guy, we don't like this guy. This guy is incompetent in other areas. We don't think he's going to amount to much. We'll shuffle him off the blue book to get him out of the way for a while. And I think they may have come in with a bit of an attitude. Uh, I know that if I was Ed Ruppelt, who was the chief of Project Blue Book, uh, when it morphed from grudge into blue book, uh, he had been recalled from 
recalled up from the reserves. He'd been a, a bomber pilot, I believe, in World War II. Uh, he's called back to active duty during the Korean War. And if, I, if I'm him and I'm called to active duty and suddenly I got to play with UFOs, I'm not going to be a happy camper. I want to get, as a, as a military officer, I want to get into the war. That's what I've been called up for. I don't want to be screwing around with flying saucers. So I think these guys would have come in with a bit of, chip, a bit of a chip on their shoulder, with the possible exception of Ruppelt. Yeah, absolutely. Ruppelt was the exception. When he was brought in, uh, as you say, when he was reactivated, um, his first task was to investigate the capabilities of the Russian MiG fighter that was being deployed in the Korean War Theater. That was Ruppelt's, fir uh, Ruppelt's first job when he was brought back into the Air Force. Well, it just so happened that the... Um, the, the program he was working for shared office space with Project Grudge. So he would, he would hear these people a couple desks down talking about the latest UFO report, and sometimes they were serious, but most of the time they were chuckling and laughing and making fun of things. So, um, so Ruppelt was actually kind of interested in the whole UFO thing. He, wasn't, he didn't know a whole lot about it. He had never spent much time thinking about it, but he, he really was intrigued by the kind of... Uh, office chatter he would hear from a couple desks down from the Project Grudge people. So when he was actually given the job of taking over Project Grudge, um, yeah, I would say he's maybe the one and only project chief who actually may have been kind of excited and <laughs> enthusiastic about taking on the job. He certainly made some big changes. He got increased resources. He got increased funding and increased staffing. Um, and he instituted a pretty remarkable uh, um a pretty remarkable set of standards where anybody on staff on Project Grudge, which again turned into Project Blue Book, if anybody displayed any particular bias one way or the, way or the other towards an extraterrestrial hypothesis or towards an earthly hypothesis, they would be transferred. He didn't want anyone with pre-existing biases working on his crew. He wanted everyone to be open-minded. And for that alone, I think we owe Edward Ruppelt a huge debt of gratitude. So he said he set up Project Blue Book. Uh, he's talking to Heineck, but Heineck is still of the mindset that uh, there is no alien visitation. There are explanations uh, for everything that's being seen. Yeah, after he had done his work on Project Sign, which ended, I, I believe, in 1948, he, he was really only under contract for a few months. Uh, I think it may have been 48 going into 49. Um, so he gets done with his work for Project Sign. Basically, he gets all the way down to the bottom of that stack of, of paperwork, and his job is done. So he goes back to uh, – he collects his paycheck, and he goes back to Ohio State and Ohio Westland and just, you know, just becomes a college professor and an astronomer again. Well, a few years later, the UFO problem is still plaguing the Air Force. And Edward Ruppelt is the new Blue Book chief, and he needs to find out something about the Thomas Mantell air crash from 1948. Uh, and he finds out that there's one of the original staff members who's still around, and that's J. Allen Hynek, <laughs> working, right, working right up the highway at Ohio State University. So Ruppelt pays a call on Dr. Hynek and says, hey, would you mind looking over your case files again? Because our case files got coffee spilled on them and we can't read them anymore and i'd like to know more about this case so heineck says sure sure he pulls out his files and he looks them over and he says you know what i was wrong about this at the time of this incident heineck said that the pilot had been chasing the planet venus and this was a case where a pilot 
uh, crashed and died after chasing a UFO over, over Kentucky. And Hynek looks at his report and he says, yeah, I was wrong to say it was Venus. It was absolutely not Venus. In this case, Hynek hadn't really consulted all of these astronomical charts. He had gotten something wrong. But so, well, that, let me let me just point out that this was a daylight sighting. We're talking yeah. about two two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Heineck was saying, "Well, you can see Venus in the daytime if you know where to look, and right. once you've spotted it, you can pick it up again." So I, his original idea was that Mantell had spotted Venus, this light in the sky, which I would have thought would have been very very dim if you. You could see it at all, but not at all like what Mantel was describing. Yeah. So it's a daylight sighting. So this is kind of a preposterous explanation. Yeah, and, it was. And Heineck fessed up to it, you know, which was kind of remarkable at the time and the, in the context in which it took place. But Ruppelt was very impressed by that. And he went back to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base thinking that, you know, Heineck had a pretty good head on his shoulders. Uh, and over time then, as Project Blue Book expanded and needed more resources, well, of course, he went back to Dr. Hynek and, and drafted Hynek to rejoin the effort. And uh, Hynek's first job was kind of a cloak-and-dagger mission. He was sent out by Project Blue Book to travel around the country, uh, actually, in, and into Canada as well, uh, visiting uh, observatories and talking to his fellow astronomers with one specific goal. He was trying to find out how many professional astronomers have seen UFOs. And of them, how many of those astronomers have actually publicly stated <laughs> that they've seen UFOs? And Heineck was very amazed to discover that about, I think the percentage was about 11% of the astronomers that he polled had seen UFOs, which is a pretty high percentage. Well, you would expect astronomers to see these sort of things because they're looking into the sky all the time. I mean, yeah, that's it makes their sense. job to look in the sky. Yeah, and, and I, like I said earlier, they know what's not supposed to be in the sky. It's you know, it's immediately obvious to them if something doesn't belong up there. So Heineck has polled the astronomers around the country, and discovers that, um, contrary, I think, to what the perception was, that astronomers do in fact see flying saucers. Yeah, and he also found out something else interesting, and that was that. Um, even though the majority of the astronomers he polled said that they would be willing to um, study the phenomenon, they also said they would only do it if they could do it anonymously. <laughs> they had to have some sort of intellectual cover um, before they would actually commit to researching UFOs. And this is where Heineck developed what he called the committee complex. He said that somebody will deny something in committee uh, but when you catch him alone in the hallway, he will be all for it. So he found this over and over again. If he just talked to another astronomer in the hallway, one-on-one, -on -one, they'd say, oh, yeah, I'm definitely interested in this UFO project. But if you brought it up in a committee meeting, he would deny it. <laughs> he would deny it like crazy. So, uh, but I, th I think looking at the the history, you know, Heineck is doing this after 1952, I believe, Um I say that because Ruppelt has now moved into Project Blue Book, is, so the chronology works out that way. Right, right. Um, but there's been five years of, I guess, propaganda suggesting that uh, only drunks and poorly educated people see flying saucers. So I can understand an astronomer not wanting to admit to being in that group. Oh, yeah. There was a huge stigma attached to it. 
Um, and Heineck was, at that point, Heineck was really the only establishment scientist who had the guts to speak out publicly because shortly after he took this survey of his fellow astronomers, he attended a meeting of um, the Optical Society of America in Boston in 1952. And the society had actually invited three prominent scientists to deliver papers on the UFO problem. The first two scientists thoroughly debunked it, said there's nothing to it. It's just, it's just astronomical inversions or atmospheric inversions. And then Heineck was the third scientist to get up and talk. He wasn't nearly as well-known as the first two. He was kind of a nobody, just sort of a low-level college professor from Ohio. Um, but he had been working on the Air Force's UFO project for a couple of years at this point. So he got up in front of these scientists and said, hey, this is real. There's something going on here, and we need to study it. And this was the moment at which he uttered what, to me, is one of my favorite Heineck lines. He tells this gathering of scientists, he says, ridicule is not part of the scientific method, and the American public should not be taught that it is. So right at that moment, Heineck basically goes public and says, I'm interested in this. I think there's something worth studying here. And it was a huge risk for him at that point in his career, but obviously it, it worked out pretty well for him. Well, let me interrupt here because we're going to have to uh, take a break. When we come back, I think we want to talk about how Heineck changed his mind about this sort of thing and how he came to believe that there was something extraterrestrial in there. I'm talking with Mark O'Connell. His website is www.highstrangenessufo.com. Mine is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And we will be back in just a few moments, so please stick around. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. I'm back with Mark O'Connell, and I want you all to notice that I did not call him Mark McConnell one time. I'll probably screw that up now in this segment. Uh, when we went away, we were talking about Ruppelt and Heineck and Heineck uh, coming back into the uh, the Air Force consultant uh, aspect of his career. Um, 
so I wanted to kind of, how does he morph into a believer from that? Uh, can you kind of give us a quick analysis? Sure, sure. From his first four anti-UFO work with Project Sign, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Heineck had found that about 20% of the cases remained unexplained. That didn't bother him at all at the time. Well, fast forward three years later, he's brought back into the fold to work on what's now called Opera, uh, Project Blue Book. And he's given a new stack of UFO reports to go through. And he finds, to his amazement, number one, the phenomenon hasn't gone away. He thought it was a fad that would die out. Well, it clearly hadn't. And number two, even after, even after several years, there remained this consistent 20% of the cases that could not be explained. And that really struck Heineck. He was a guy who went with patterns. Patterns meant a lot to him. So when he sees this pattern of 20% of cases year after year that can't be explained away, he starts thinking, there's something to this. Now, it took about 14 years, all the way up until the Michigan swamp gas case of 1966, for Heineck to just finally make the decision, okay, I'm done with doing it the Air Force's way. I'm going to do it my way from now on. So it, it, the transition took a long, long time, but it started surprisingly early in his career. So right from 1952 on, Heineck was really starting to think, okay, there's something real is going on here. All these people's testimony can't be dismissed. All this hard evidence that we've found can't be dismissed. There's got to be something real going on here. He just could never figure out what it was. Didn't the uh, Socorro UFO landing, Lonnie Zamora sighting of the object, uh, of an object landing uh, near Socorro, New Mexico, kind of feed into all of that? Oh yeah, he called he called the Zamora case uh, the the Rosetta Stone of UFO research, and I'm excited to hear about your book, Kevin. I can't wait to read that because it's such a good case. And yeah, Heineck was it it was a case that really struck Heineck as kind of a gold standard, or as he said, the Rosetta Stone. He had a, a incredibly believable witness in Lonnie Zamora, the traffic cop. There was physical evidence left behind. There was a burned bush and there were landing pad imprints. Um, and even though there was no other, well, no, I, okay, let me backtrack. There was a secondary witness. They, they were just never located after the fact. There was a family on vacation driving through Socorro the day this happened and they pulled in for gas at a local gas station, and the father of the family asks the gas station attendant, he says, what, what do you got flying around here in the air? And the guy says, well, there are all sorts of military pieces, so it's probably a helicopter. And the dad says, well, this was no helicopter. So you've got this family that also saw something weird in the sky that day, but they, they paid cash for their gas. They could never be traced. But well, let me yeah. let me break in here because sure. one of the things that happened and what got me started was I was told there were other witnesses, mm. not just the family. And as I was going through the Project Blue Book file on this, there was a report written by a Captain Holder, who was the range office, one of the range officers from White Sands Missile Range, and he wrote in his report that there had been three phone calls into the police station. And he's writing the report on the night this happened uh, earlier in the day about some low-flying, noisy object. So there was additional evidence of additional witnesses that were never that was never traced down because the uh, police dispatcher didn't write down the names of the people calling in. So there are additional witnesses. So the case is really much more robust than than we've been led to believe. 
That is fascinating. I, I can't wait to hear what you've uncovered on that. And the other thing I would mention is I think Heineck was saying that the Air Force told or it was told reported the Air Force had told Zamora not to talk about the uh, symbol on the craft and yeah. that he'd seen bodies. But it turns out, A, it wasn't the Air Force. Holder told him to withhold the information about the symbol so they could use it cross-check with other people who might come forward to report the uh, sighting and see if the symbol matched what Zamora reported. And uh, the FBI agent named Arthur Burns told uh, him, well, maybe it's best not to mention that you saw the saw alien creatures or creatures down there because you know, people will tend to ridicule you for it. So they were kind of looking out for Zamora in one respect and trying to uh, pr- provide a way of corroborating other sightings uh, of, of this of this object, so the Zamora case is really really interesting in that respect. And did this really kind of cement uh, Heineck's idea that there was something more to this to UFO? Yeah, that is, yeah, I, absolutely. This case had a, a profound effect on him. And there's one little detail of the case that I find particularly enlightening and amusing, and that is that when Heineck flew down from Chicago to Albuquerque to investigate the case. Uh, he was he was picked, I think he may have been picked, I think it may have been Colonel Holder, who you just mentioned, who picked him up at the Air Force. No, it was, Air, it was Airport. A, a major, an Air Force major named Connor. Oh, uh, right, right, Connor. So Holder, Connor Holder picks, was an Army captain. Okay, thank you for the correction. So Connor picks up <laughs> Heineck at the Albuquerque Airport and drives him the 70 miles down to Socorro, but on the way, the car has a flat tire. And guess what? There's no jack in the car. So Heineck has to hitch a ride the rest of the way to Socorro, New Mexico. To me, that is just the perfect metaphor for Heineck's relationship with the Air Force. The Air Force was always getting a flat tire, and Heineck was always <laughs> coming a ride on his own to get to the truth. Well, my question would be, was, was, was Connor driving his own car? Was he an Air Force staff car? I believe it was an Air Force staff car. Then somebody really screwed up because there should have been a jack in that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things you do when you check the car out. You check for all those sort of uh, emergency equipments. So Heineck has to hitchhike to Socorro so he can begin his investigation. Yeah, isn't that crazy? The nice thing about that, though, is he gets gets to Socorro before Connor does. So he's able to... He's able to interview uh, Officer Zamora and uh, Sam Chavez, the state policeman who who arrived at the scene minutes later. So Heineck is able to interview the two of them without any without any uh, Air Force or FBI people around, which which was, you know, a big deal for him. And he um, concludes that this was possibly a real visitation from an alien craft. Well, that's where we get into a little bit of a tricky situation. Heineck was always very careful about making those kinds of pronouncements. He was always very careful about not painting himself into a corner. Um, He was always very careful about his explanations for UFOs. He was willing to entertain the possibility that they were extraterrestrial craft with, you know, piloted by some sort of other intelligent being. Um, but because there was no absolute proof of that, he would never fully endorse that theory. So Heineck was, instead of saying, I, it's, I just had this conversation this morning in an interview, so it's fresh on my mind. It's maybe better to say that instead of Heineck becoming a true believer, to just say Heineck became a, an, an open-minded investigator. 
he was willing to consider all possibilities at that point. So unlike his original bias against there would be a uh, terrestrial explanation for everything, he is now willing to embrace the extraterrestrial as a possibility for uh, a sighting. Right. And he said in a TV special once, he was interviewed for a, a TV news special about UFOs. And he said, look, I have no problem with people talking about extraterrestrial spacecraft, but the burden of proof is on them. Absolutely. I mean, we're making the pronouncement there's something out there, then, yeah, we got to prove prove it with a preponderance of the evidence as opposed yeah. to just saying, well, you have to believe me because I saw this. Yeah. You know, Heineck, I've, I've said this many, many times. Heineck went exactly where the facts led him, and he never went one inch beyond where the facts led him. So he would be, a, a, I guess, a more of a skeptical investigator uh, and I think of the, the mind of the skeptic as someone who questions everything, whether from from whatever point of view, he becomes more skeptical and therefore a much better investigator of what he's looking into. I think that's a fair description. I, I totally do. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time here. Wow, that went fast. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's incredibly. I, I think, well, oh, my God, we're starting this thing. It's going to be an hour. And how am I going to get through it? And the next thing I know, it's all oh, we're done. So uh, I've been joined today by Mark O'Connell. I got through the whole thing without calling you by the wrong name. Your book is The Close Encounters Man. It's from uh, Day Street Books, which is imprint of HarperCollins, which is available now. I guess you go to Amazon and, and pick it up and that sort of thing. Sure. The, the website is www.highstrangenessufo.com, and uh, you can learn – more about some of the we've some of what we've talked about today at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, which is uh, my blog, which often has additional information that wasn't picked up um, through our conversations, or maybe links to other sites that will provide you with more information. And I always take a take a moment to point out that uh, since we're at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO crash case. And I had done the book Roswell in the 21st Century, which is a cold case investigation of the uh, evidence for the crash at Roswell, that it might be time to take a look at that. I always tried to make it a dispassionate or tried to make it a dispassionate look at that so that you're looking at it from the point of view of kind of the skeptical, but kind of the, the, the believer looking at where we're, we're going. So I think I've tried to eliminate my bias. So you might want to take a look at that as well. Uh, next week, I will be joined by Don Ecker. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, some of the things going on with MUFON, his experiences with MUFON, uh, try to get into a little bit about what's coming up in their symposium and that sort of thing. And the following week, I will be joined by Alejandro Rojas, he of Open Minds TV and that sort of thing, getting a perspective of what they're doing and how they're coming about uh, looking at the UFO phenomena uh, in its totalitarity. Uh, anyway, join us uh, next week and uh, you'll learn something about UFOs. Thanks for listening. Totality. 